Well, I'll add my good morning to those who went before me. Good morning. I have a couple of announcements to share with you that weren't there earlier. Um, this is our first Sunday of the year, and we like to recognize faithfulness in people that have been here throughout the year. And we had two individuals who had perfect attendance last year. We had one other individual who we're going to give honorable mention to for missing just one Sunday. And uh, that would be, the per- perfect attendance goes to Rachel Bailey and Brenda Westlink. So those two were here every Sunday without missing. And then our honorable mention, one miss. There's one individual had one Sunday they missed, and that was Theodore Leachman. He's got to get the rest of his family act together, but Theodore was here all but one Sunday, and he's not here today. <laughs> All right, he's got 51 weeks he's got to cover just to equal this last year's 2013's performance. So it's good. We had a number of people that missed a couple of Sundays. Um, most of my family, uh, some of the other Leachmans, some Brummets, they missed a couple of Sundays. But uh, we want to recognize those three this morning. And also, uh, our service does start at 10.30, and, uh, but you're free to come. I'm here at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning if you would like to come early. There's always something to talk about if you, unless if you'd like to come early. And it's called fellowship. It's a weird word. doesn't have a lot of credence these days, but we want to encourage you to participate in that. Well, if you'll turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, I could not have timed this passage better if I had carefully laid out my calendar of my druthers of when I would want to preach certain messages. This one lands today as we uh, contemplate often this week uh, the coming year and commitments that we need to make in our lives. And so chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, we'll read verses 1 through 10. We're not going to study that entire section, but verses 1 through 10. Let me turn this on. I've not been yelled at, but I probably should have been several times for our podcast. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before. And to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do, not, that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad 
when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, as being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. We continue this morning in a very difficult study because it requires something of us and we don't like to have stuff required of us very much. We have looked extensively at Paul's development of his authority and the need sometimes to exercise that, although he certainly had no interest in doing that. It was not a goal of his ministry to exercise his apostolic authority. Uh, It certainly wasn't his goal of ministry to defend his credentials or defend his ministry itself to those to whom he ministered. And yet he found it necessary, not because of his interest in it, but because of the grave dangers that confronted the Corinthian believers if he failed to do so. If he failed to really establish his authority with them, he would leave them over to those who were introducing division, introducing error, and leading them into sin. And this Paul desired to guard the church from, and thus he felt and necessary, incumbent upon him even, to defend his place in their lives as the messenger of God. And this is not unusual. Unfortunately, we look through the Old Testament, we find the prophets of old having to do the very same thing, to defend themselves as the messengers that God has sent. And because men did not like the message, they attacked that messenger thinking that if they could shut up the messenger, that the message wouldn't matter. That was really the goal, the objective. And so it was in Paul's day, so it is today. If we can silence the messenger, then certainly the message is something that we no longer have to take into account in our daily decision-making. And Paul, of course, understands where that ends. And we saw that last week as we finished up chapter 12. That if he did not exercise his authority in the manner that he describes here and defend it in the way that he has done so, the end result would be as a breach of righteousness. It would lead to sin of all sorts that are unrepented of that would be cause for mourning rather than for joy, for sadness. And so we are called to recognize the authority of God's Word, of His servants, His messengers, to consider and examine their lives, that we might then follow that example, live righteously, And avoid the sin of which Paul is so concerned with with regard to the Corinthians. Before we look specifically into the verses before us, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to gather your name today for each one here. We thank you for your word, most of all, your spirit within us, that we can have a confidence what we see before us here in this passage is authoritative truth. Lord, on my prayers that 
Our time might not need to be spent here today to establish that authority. But each one of us might have already recognized it in our lives. And we are simply now called to understand it better. To be reminded of its principles. That we might also consider its application to our lives more consistently and fully. We need your help in all of this. We do ask for it. And thank you for it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul reiterates his travel plans in verse 1 and does an interesting comment here that we would take offense at. Um, If modern-day preachers used the verse in the context that Paul uses this, he probably would have uh, gotten uh, uh, corrected, at least, um, by those that he speaks to. And he's comparing each visit with a witness. That every time I come for a visit before you, every time you have access to my presence in your midst, every time that occurs, it is a witness. And it stands on its own. And so Paul says, I came with the gospel, I introduced it to you, established the church there. That is your first witness, the coming of the gospel. I came once again, a second time, another witness to you of the principles of God's Word at work in this man's life and the message that consistently is being preached over and over again. He says, now, here comes uh, on my calendar, I look and I see that potentially you're going to have a third visit, which he compares to a third witness. Here's a third witness against you. And on the basis of this, he says, each of these witnesses establishes the fact that you're accountable for this message. You're accountable for what you've heard. And his accusation is very powerful given the amount of attention they have gotten from him. And he says, listen, the word, the message that you have heard has been well established. This is not something new. Paul is not wishy-washy and flipping from here to over there. He has a, a message of truth that's enduring. It doesn't change. And so whether he comes with the gospel, comes back years later with another time of ministry, and now is looking at a third time where he's going to have to come and and exercise himself in a manner he doesn't look forward to, doesn't really want to have to do, but he will if necessary. And he's hoping to avoid it by their response to this letter. Um, We find that the message never changed. There was a consistency in it, because truth has to be consistent. Absolute truth cannot vary. And so Paul says, listen, you've had this establishment of the Word by these multiple opportunities to have my witness there. In addition to these physical visits, you have at least three letters that we know of from Paul to the Corinthians that we enjoy today. The two that are recorded here, one that is lost, unless these last few chapters of Second Corinthians are the letter that was lost. They sure seem to have a different uh, tone to them and certainly could easily be placed between First and Second Corinthians. Um, but we find these witnesses piling up against the Corinthians. And so Paul is rightly here concerned with all of this to establish the Word of God in your presence. Why isn't it taking effect? Why isn't there the evidence that you have adhered yourself to that truth, that you've acknowledged it, that you've humbled yourself to it? 
And again, we have a warning, not necessarily a threat, but a warning. It might come off as a threat to some, that those who just tenaciously cling to their sin. It says in verse 2, As I have told you before and foretells if I are present the second time now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again I will not spare. That is, I'm not going to come in meekly. I'm not going to come in um, with, this, with this patience. Um, you've had enough witness. You've had enough establishment of truth you have resisted it sufficiently that every compassion, every, well, not compassion, all of these contacts are going to be compassionate. Even the strong-handed one is a compassionate thing because its goal, its ambition, is to bring them to righteousness and the truth and to guard them from destruction. That is compassion. So I misuse that word, but we have, a, instead of a gentle, let's we'll use that word, instead of a gentle hand, He's going to come with a very strong and powerful one, a direct one. He says, I'm not going to spare you that. I'm going to have to inflict that kind of pain upon you and, uh, and very direct. And we, we limit that. We, we undermine that. We don't think that that's substantial today to have whether you have the blessing or not the blessing of a man of God. And for Paul, he had a very different view of that. That when the man of God comes and he has the message of God, and he comes now not um, with gentleness and meekness and humility, but he comes with strength and authority and even harshness, that there are ramifications to that in the believer's life. And there's a place for both. And we have grown completely intolerant of the second, haven't we? And I've had individuals in the past, well, you're just too strong, you're too, too hard-nosed, you're too um, abrupt, you're, you're just... But the truth has to be that way when it's ignored over and over and over again with every gentle instruction. And Paul recognizes that, that at this point, with all of these witnesses that you've had, with all of this establishment of God's Word in your life, um, all that's really waiting is for you to submit to it and... At this point, it's not instruction that you're lacking. It's not the information that you have missed out on. Most of what I preach is not informative to you. It's not stuff you've never heard before. Most of it is admonition. It's admonishing you to obey what you already know. And what Paul here is threatening to do, is promising to do, is that when I show up, I will admonish you. I will exercise my authority to its fullest extent uh, and that is going to have some ramifications for you that is, are not pleasant. He doesn't like the ramifications of it. He would prefer not to do it. Certainly the people would not have liked the ramifications of it. We minimize those. Well, what can he do to us? Well, when we look at the Old Testament, we look here in the New Testament, we see that God is attentive to those kinds of judgments by his people. When a prophet of old declared it will not rain, God says it will not rain. And he gives that liberty to his messengers that if you want to withhold a blessing, then I'll acknowledge that and I'll withhold the blessing. 
You say, well, that's Old Testament. Oh, it was carried in the New Testament. This is the force of Jesus Christ's statement that, you know, if you forgive someone on earth, I'll forgive them. If you don't, I won't. We like the first part, right? But the second part's there, too. That if we don't forgive, neither will God forgive that person. Because there's no evidence that there is a repentance. There's no evidence that there is, there is a turning away, that there's a sorrow over that sin. And so God still holds it to their account, which we're going to see extensively here in just a couple of verses. And so Paul talks about those who are still in sin or tenaciously clinging to it. Even though they recognize all this truth has been imparted to them, all the evidence of its authority has been given to them, and still they resist it. This is not a lack of knowledge anymore. This is a lack of faith. That is, it is a lack of believing that God's word is true and really means what it says. And this is what we come to when he asks us, you want proof of Christ? You want proof? Let me share with you something. If you want proof <laughs> of the authority of God, you are in deep trouble. You see, we believe the Hollywood version that we go to God and says, well, if this is true, then I want to see these, and all these things are positive blessings. That blessings are the way God proves his point. Um, but if you go through Scripture, what you will find more often than not is the way God proves His point is through judgment. The removal of blessing. That if you tenaciously stick close to sin and you say, you're going to have to prove that I have to abandon this sin, then God is going to come in and allow you or cause you to reap a harvest of consequences for that sin. And you're going to throw up your arms and say, God, how could you allow this? And he's going to look down and he says, well, how could you deny me? How could you reject me? How could you resist my truth? You asked for proof. Here's the proof. You've tenaciously clung to your sin. Now its consequences are clinging to you. Don't cry. Don't come wailing to me. This is what you've chosen. And so Paul's concerned that these people want proof that the man of God is the man of God. That the message is the message of God. After all, he comes and he's kind of weak and, and uh, I don't know if anyone's ever accused me of that. But uh, they accuse Paul of that pretty regularly. Who is not weak towards you. Um, you know, God comes and he, he's, he's not going to be weak. He hasn't been weak. The testimony has been clear. He came in and delivered you. Instead of weakness, you should see the power of God that has been toward you. In you. These prepositions are important all the way through this passage of Scripture. Let's go through them all together so you can see the force of them. It says, who is not weak toward you. So Christ is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Christ in you is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go on. He is crucified in weakness, and he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. 
but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. And so what is God directed towards us is not weakness, but power and strength. This is what he has brought toward us. It has produced something in us, and that is Christ in us, that that power is internalized. Once that power is internalized, now he can have life through us and work through us. He can, he can, he can minister through us. So, just as Christ was crucified and was weak then and submitted himself, humbled himself, yet he was infused by the power of God for the resurrection and he lives. And this is what Paul calls the Corinthians to. Even as your Savior weakened himself, humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, separation from the Father, becoming sin for us who knew no sin, and yet, God recognized that sacrifice, infused it then with, with the power of God, of the resurrection, that Christ lives. So he is inviting the Corinthians to follow that example and to humble themselves and in that weak state to receive the power of God toward them. For God wants to send it in your direction, but he's waiting for you to receive it to surrender yourself, to make yourself weak, that he can be strong. When Christ is in us, then the power of God toward us is fulfilled and we live. Real life for the Christian cannot be experienced until this point. That we have humbled ourselves to the message of Christ and from the human standpoint, we look at that and say, well, we're weak. We want to acknowledge our weakness. That's right. Your absolute powerlessness. Because what you want to receive is not the power of, a, of a, another man. You don't want to receive the power of some eloquent speaker. You don't want to receive the power of these principles of, of the ancients, whether his name is Confucius or whoever. No, we don't want that kind of power because it's weak. It's beggarly. We want the power of God. She's we're going to submit to that truth of God and it alone. So Paul calls them to this and he recognizes that this is still a tense point there. But God's intention is that we have Christ in us, the power of God directed toward us that we might live. And then this is culminated, and I believe verse 5 is a powerful concluding statement, not just for this portion of Scripture, but for all of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the entire Corinthian study. I think it comes down to verse 5. And it's going to take some time for us to investigate it today. Examine yourselves. as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. This is perhaps one of the top ten frightening verses in the Bible for the church. It blows out of the water 
a lot of doctrine that makes us feel good about our Christianity no matter what. The implications of this message are serious. For throughout this verse, like the author of Hebrews and some other passages that I would rank right up there with this, we have an examination to the church to consider themselves that they might not be people of faith. Now, it would be real easy for us to just write this off and say, well, maybe if I was in the Corinthian church, uh, that this would need to be done. But I think I've tried over the last couple years to carefully demonstrate to you that you are in the Corinthian church. Have we not made that our objective to see just how similar we are, how comparable we are, not contrasted to the Corinthian church, but comparable to the Corinthian church, the Western church really is. That this is the one that describes us best out of all the epistles to the churches, the ecclesiastical epistles. This is the one that we fit the best. We don't fit Ephesus very well. We don't fit Philippi very well. We don't fit Colossae very well. We really, at this point, don't even fit Galatians very well. But we, and Romans, not there. But boy, can we identify with the church in Corinth when we look at the church today in our land. So let's not relegate this off to, well, that's for those Corinthians, those carnal, carnal Christians, as though we weren't. I want to assure you we are the most carnal Christians I believe any society has ever known. We worship entertainment. We are hedonists. We are materialists. We are humanists. And as much as we might say we don't, your choices in life scream that you are. And so... We must join the Corinthians in coming to this verse and letting it hit us smack between the eyes. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Are you really what you claim to be? I think it's real important for me first to say that I don't have this job to do. It doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, I've examined you. You can fool me. You can fool your family. You can fool yourself a little bit, but, but ultimately you know the motives of your heart and life and what you're really into and what really gets you excited in, in the things of life. Uh, what you really look forward to this week, which probably wasn't coming here this morning necessarily. Uh, what you're looking forward to in life. What your goals and ambitions and aspirations are. You know them. I don't. I don't know what yours are. Paul here doesn't say doesn't doesn't take on that job of examining them. His responsibility is to look at their works, and their works are evidence of of uh, tendencies. But even those can be feigned. You can you can 
You can be something you're not in front of other people and be in horrific sin the rest of your life. Um, You can put on that mask, that facade, very easily, and you can fool people like me. And hence, Paul says, listen, Corinthians, just from what I've seen, you're in trouble, but I need to ask you, in fact, I'm going to command you to examine yourselves because I'm under the assumption, I'm ministering under the assumption that you are believers. But at some point, that has to be questioned. At some point, when there's not enough evidence to substantiate, I have to go, "Mm, there might not be. But fundamentally, what's most important is not whether or not I think you're a Christian. What's more important is whether you really have the faith. Whether you are genuinely walking with God. His way, not your way, His way. And so the command to examine ourselves, to to look into ourselves and to consider, is this genuine? This faith that I have confessed and professed, is it a genuine thing that has touched my life and that that is the driving force of who I am and all of my decision-making? Put yourself to the test, he says. Test it out. Put some feet on this, let it hit the pavement, and let's find out who you're really living for. What you're really living for. What are the priorities of your life? He makes a statement at the end of this verse that says maybe you are disqualified. Maybe you... Uh, in the margin here, they use a little bit different word. Maybe you don't stand the test. Maybe you failed. Maybe Christ isn't in you. And there are many that taught. We, we love to use a certain verse. Let's, let's back up a little bit. We love to use certain verses to make ourselves feel good. We ignore the context of those verses to make us sure that heaven is my home and... No matter what happens to me from now on, that is established because it's the work of God and not of men. And to some degree, I'll agree with you, but you guys know my position historically has always been that saving faith is enduring faith. And without endurance, there cannot be a claim to faith and its reward of heaven. But we love to quote verses. And in our study in 1 John, we looked at 1 John 5, 12, um, these things I've written to you that believe in the end that you may know that you have eternal life. And we love to use that verse, ignoring what it actually says, that all of 1 John 1, 2, 3, 4, and the first 11 verses of chapter 5 is what he says. All these things I've written so that you may know. Well, what did he write? He says, well, um, that you confess your sin, that you love God and keep His commandments, that you love the brethren. All these things, I mean, chapters full of information that are qualifiers for that verse. We ignore chapters of the Bible because this tells us that we are for sure going to heaven. Ignoring the if clause. The other one we love to use is in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, you know, once you're in my hand, No one can take you out. 
And my Father is greater than me, and no one is able to pluck you out of my Father's hand. We love that verse, don't we? We just love quoting that verse about our eternal security, that I place myself in Jesus' hands, that I am secure forever. Um, We ignore the context again. Does anyone know what the verses ahead of that say? It says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's the condition of being in the Father's hand, is that we hear the voice of Jesus Christ. He knows us because we have listened to him and because we're following him. That means being disciples. That's the condition of this, no one can take you out of my hand. We ignore the condition, we claim the promise, and then we live like the devil. And think that we've got one over on God. Because we can quote a couple of verses of Scripture out of context without the conditional phrases being met. You notice that nowhere in that did Jesus say, did you pray the sinner's prayer? My sheep pray the sinner's prayer. And I know them and give them eternal life. No, they'll pluck them out of my hand. No. My sheep hear my voice. They recognize Jesus They're attentive. As soon as they hear that voice, they respond. Have any of you ever cared for sheep? I grew up caring for sheep. They know the voice of the people to feed them. They know their voice. I have a little goat back here that's figured out that that it knows my voice. And and it knows Valerie's voice and, and knows the people that feed it and responds. Do you know the Savior's voice? That you long for it? That as soon as you hear it, you respond? It makes you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Literally makes you salivate for truth? As soon as you hear the Savior's voice, you get excited? My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And then they follow. This is the qualification. And this is what Paul is still clinging to, is understanding that part of this examining ourselves and testing ourselves is, am I qualified to claim the promises of God? Have I immersed myself in Jesus Christ? Is He really my Lord and my God? Is He the King of my life? And not just the guy I believed in to get rid of my sins so I can go to heaven. Fire insurance. Is he my shepherd, my Savior, my God? Is he the one that I live for, will die for, will surrender every material thing in this life for, give up any level of entertainment for? Is he the one that I will lose my job for? Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. You know yourselves, don't you? Is Jesus in you or not? That's the question. That really all of First and Second Corinthians go to 
to bring to light. How can you claim Christ and still be in all this carnality? How can you never mature and still claim to be Christ? I've been talking to you and communicating to you. I've been dealing with you as with just baby Christians. But fundamentally, you need to question whether you're even in the faith. This isn't the first time Paul has come to it, but it's right that he would come to this at the end of this letter. Foundationally, you have to question it. And instead of walking through your life as a comfortable little stroll with you and, and you know, and, and little God's little sunshine warming your shoulders, um, and isn't God lucky to have me? And, and you know, I've got this in my, my this prayer in my hip pocket that uh, makes me know I'm going to heaven. Um, God calls you to something very different. That as you walk, you're not walking in arrogant defiance of God in your own sin, but you're walking examining yourselves. What are my motives? Why am I here? I don't mean your existence on the planet. I'm saying, why are you here this morning? Why are you here? Why bother? Are we excited to hear the word of the Lord? Or even if it calls us to examine ourselves as to whether or not you're in the faith? Are you genuine? Or is this just a facade? Is this just pretend? Is this being here to fulfill some religious obligation, hoping that it doesn't stretch too far into the football game you really want to go and watch. Who is your God? What is your God? Examine yourself. In what do you trust? In whom do you trust? Are you in the faith? Is Christ in you? The way that God tests your faith is through tribulation. And this to me is perhaps one of the hardest parts of being an American Christian. A Christian in America, sorry. Said that wrong again. Of being a Christian in America. I'm not a citizen. My citizen. I do not stand on my American citizenship. Stand on citizenship in heaven. But being a Christian in America is that it costs you so little to be a Christian. I know some of you think it's going to cost you a lot here, and maybe to some degree. Uh, but really, let's be honest. It's cost us very little. And the way many mega ministries are going, uh, even the little bit that you might pay to be a Christian, even that's being bartered away in the non-offensive movement. Don't offend anyone, whatever you do. You might say, well, we kind of like it that way. It's kind of fun. We, we get to exercise our Christianity with freedom and we should be thankful for that. 
Here's the difficulty. While you're enjoying that freedom to be a Christian in ease, your Christianity is untested. So when we come to a verse like this, test yourselves, it means something. See, the Corinthian faith had never been tested from outside of it. And just like them, our faith really hasn't been tested from outside of it. They really hadn't had any opposition in their town against them. Look through the record. There really wasn't a lot of opposition in Corinth against them. I mean, after all, some of the Corinthians were still sinning worse than the rest of the society, right? Saw that in 1 Corinthians. So we didn't have a lot of opposition that they were encountering in their community. It was a, a, a thriving place with lots of ideas. You had sailors coming through. You had, you had this transitional place that... Almost anything went, and, and no one was condemning anything. No one was approving anything. It was just, it was just this melting pot, quote-unquote, of ideas and philosophies, and just be your own person and, and live your own life. We would call that liberty. The Corinthians had it. So they didn't have a lot of opposition from outside against them. Because of that, their faith was largely untested. And so Paul comes to them and says, you need to test yourselves. Well, how do we test ourselves without opposition? When there's no tribulation, when there's no trouble, how can we test ourselves? And I believe this is the point of First and Second Corinthians, is that we... Stand God's Word as a mirror. And we look at our lives, and we look at it, and we look at our lives, and we look at it, and we look at our lives, and we look at it, and we go, do I pass? Am I really willing to do this kind of stuff? Am I really willing to acknowledge God's Word as so much authority that it can take away some of the very things and maybe demands that I surrender some of the very things I've committed my entire life to that are ungodly? Maybe pursuing that million-dollar paycheck Okay, $100,000 paycheck. Getting that six-figure salary. Maybe it's not what God really wanted for me at all. Test yourselves. What would you willingly pay to conform yourselves more to God's Word? Put it to the test. In your heart, for real, is Christ in you? Or have you failed the test? Are there other things more precious to you? We sang that song, and I picked some songs purposefully. Lord, you are more precious than silver. 
It goes through a whole bunch of precious things in men's eyes and says, you're more than that to me. We sing the song and it sounds nice. We like the tune. But I wonder if we've ever really tested it in our life. We've just gotten done with one of the most materialistic seasons in the year. We just finished up a month and a half of the most materialism, highest materialism that we encounter anywhere in the world um, right here. From the day after we're supposed to be thankful to the day we're celebrating sacrifice, we do nothing but shopping, shopping, shopping. Invest ourselves in materialism. We fail the test. We are disqualified from the promises of God. The hope of Paul is that at the end of the examination process, they would reevaluate their life and recognize that much of what was going on in their church was not of the faith. And that they were at a point of crisis where they needed to decide whose they were. Who they would follow. What would be the priority of their life and of all their resources. They were in a point of crisis and the stakes were their eternity. For you see, if they failed the test, that they were not in the faith, then that power of God toward them by which they should live would become the power of God toward them by which they would be judged. The stakes are so high that Paul recognizes he cannot always be gentle in his treatment of the saints. And I know many of you have, over the course of the study, said he's been gentle so far. (laughs) Well, he said his words were powerful. His words were direct. His words were sometimes described by people as harsh. His presence was gentle, humble. He's willingly doing that. The stakes are so high now, and they have been so resistant to all these witnesses that have been against them, against the way of their life, the way of their Christian walk, quote-unquote, the manner of their churchianity, that Paul now has to say, we've got to raise the game here a little bit. At some point, I have to exercise authority on a level that I'm not really comfortable with, but the stakes are too high. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to name names and I'm going to name sins and I'm going to take away blessings and I'm going to declare cursings. I'm going to come in and I'm going to do what is necessary that I might not mourn in the day of Christ that some of you under my ministry aren't there for blessing, but are rather there for judgment. (laughs) 
And this is the force of Paul's ministry. And of every man of God's ministry. Your ministry to your children, to your grandchildren, to your nieces, nephews, uncles, aunts. This is why it is necessary that you be willing to offend them, to save them. Because the stakes are too high for your comfort to be of more value than their eternity. Paul was uncomfortable with what he was going to have to do, but it was necessary, it was needed. He wanted to avoid the mourning of those who wouldn't repent of their sin and would enter into judgment, who call themselves Christians, but are not, in fact, in the faith. Instead of being offended, we ought to be delighted that someone cares enough to challenge us Are you really what you say you are? But you see, that which has offended us when someone confronts us like that is something called pride. If you don't think Christians have that, you haven't met very many. How dare you challenge that? How dare you not confront one another and say, where's your faith? Where's the evidence? Are you really? Are you really? And i got to tell you, the more offended you are at that quest- line of questioning, the more concerned I am for you. If I come to you and say, have you really looked at your life and you really believe you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you heard his voice? Does he know you? Yeah, the same guy that says, They come to me saying, Lord, Lord, look what we've done for you. And Jesus Christ says, depart from me. I never knew you. You knew of me, but you did not have Christ in you. The power of God is toward you, brethren. The power of God is toward you, sinner. The question is, is it in you? That's the force of Paul's statement here is, is Christ in you. I know he's been toward you. He's brought you a message. He's brought you a messenger multiple times. He's established his word toward you. The question is, is he in you? And how could you be offended at anyone who challenges that to your face? Can't ask me that kind of question. You really don't think I'm a Christian? I've had many people... Yeah, I said, well, is that offensive for me to ask for you to ask yourself? Are you really walking with God in righteousness and truth? Is he your king? Is he your sustenance, your desire, your thirsting? Is he your excitement, your joy, your longing? Is it really offensive to you that I ask you that? I imagine many Corinthians were offended by verse 5. But Paul's desire can't be missed. His objective was what he wanted to be 
I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. We haven't failed the test. Paul not asking them is failure. Not confronting sin is failure. Not standing for the rights of God is failure. And Paul says, I will not fail the test. I will not be disqualified. I hope you know that. Here's an example to follow. He says, I have to ask you to ask yourself this question. I have to insist that you examine yourself. And I have to exercise some authority sometimes. Even though it's very uncomfortable for me, I don't really want to. I, I, I wish it weren't ever necessary. It shouldn't ever be necessary. But as it becomes necessary, I will not fail to do so because to fail to do so means I'm disqualified from serving God. So Paul's going to join them in recognizing that he's being tested by their sin. Are you going to deal with it? Or are you going to ignore it? Are you going to sleep under a carpet, pretend it's not there? Or are you going to confront it face on? In smash mouth Christianity. Paul says, you have to know I'm not disqualified because I'm going to do the job God's called me to do. I'm going to test my faith by challenging sin when I confront it in me and in the church. And frankly, the rarity of that in this day is of deep concern to me in the church. That some of you have never seen a church confront sin until you came here. In any other church you've been in. Deeply concerning. Those churches are disqualified. They failed the test. They conformed instead of confronted. Form not to Christ, but to the world. Paul says, you know, I trust that you will know, when this is all done, we didn't fail the test. Paul's not holding them to a standard he's not holding himself to. Neither is he holding himself to a standard he's not going to hold the church to. Cuts both ways. Examine yourselves. As to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. I pray you'll do the hard work of the first half of the verse. So the day of Jesus Christ appearing... The last half will not apply to you. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word. Lord, we thank you for a lot of promises that you've granted to us in Christ Jesus, that you have offered to us. You have held yourself to. Lord, even as we thank you for those promises, we know that there are conditions to them. That we are in the faith. That we believe in you. That we trust you. That we hear your voice. That we follow you.
Lord, we recognize that we have no security here. And we have no security for eternity. If we do not walk according to your word of truth. For a divided heart is not one that will see your reward. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you might have all of us, every part in its fullness might belong to you, that you might truly be King Jesus. In each life here, in each life hearing this message, Lord, give us the courage to examine ourselves honestly, brutally, Give us the courage to test ourselves, to know ourselves. Lord, guard us from excusing ourselves. We're very adept at that. We need your help. To take responsibility for our own walk before you. We thank you so much for the power of God and the resurrection that has been directed toward us. That resides in each one here who is fully trusted in you as Savior and Lord. Genuinely. Completely. Utterly. And Lord, our prayer is that the ministry of this church might reflect that power in everything we do. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.